Yeah, so we are on lesson nine of the fall quarter. And the title of the lesson is Paul's Declaration of Christ's Supremacy. The scriptures are Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 23. Lord, we thank you that um, for this uh, word, we thank you for this letter from Paul, where he describes in this lesson just your greatness, that you have created everything, that you have redeemed everything, everyone who is willing to be redeemed, and that um, there is nothing we need other than you. And so we pray that you would help us to understand this and to embrace it and to walk in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. Before I started, I wanted to I have a tendency to give teasers and then never relieve the tease. I give a teaser and then I will never come back to it. But So last week I was talking about Gnosticism. It introduced Gnosticism and some of their teachings. And one of the teachings, what I said last week, still exists in Christianity today. And that is the... Uh, one of their teachings was that humans have no free will. The, the Gnostics would say that have no free will. Another group that taught that were the Stoics also. So, and uh, Stoicism was invented by a guy named Zeno, who's a Greek. He, yeah, he was Greek. And uh, two or three hundred years before Christ, this Stoicism was developed and Basically, they state that there's really no such thing as free will. Your life is determined by, the Stoics would say, fate. Christians absorbed this idea and said, God so determined. Is, and so this was written in the Christian theology by Augustine, this idea. And this is where we get the idea in Reformed theology that you have to be regenerated before you can be saved, which doesn't make God the author of sin. And so, you know, it's, it's a very confusing subject because the Bible will say that the Lord chose you and also tells you to choose him. The Lord cho chose you and it tells you to choose him. I personally think that the solution to that problem comes in the idea of foreknowledge. Um, but, you know, Ephesians says that before the foundation of the world, God chose us, those who believe, uh, for this, which I believe has to do with God's foreknowledge. So, yeah, I just wanted to, to mention that because that's, that's an idea that is still with us. So anyway, the first section, good morning, sir, is Christ the Creator. Remember, Paul was writing to Colossians to combat a heresy. And one of the heresies was this incipient Gnosticism, where, you know, part of it was that Christ was not God. And so Paul is combating that here. So can I get someone to read uh, section 8, Christ the Creator? That's verses 15 through 17. Okay, thank you. I did. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's so nice when we're doing the epistles because we get like two verses at one time. <laughs> when you said the well, chapters, yeah. yeah. The Old Testament next quarter, yeah. we'll be back to that. Yeah, so now in verses 15 through 20 of chapter 1, which seems to be an ancient hymn, Paul describes seven attributes of Jesus, which makes him ultimately supreme. So it starts right off in verse 15 there. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So there's two characteristics right there. He is the image of the invisible God. Yeah, when you hear that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, what does that bring up in your mind? This is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory, of the Father's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Yeah, we'll get get to that, that he upholds all things by the words of his power. John 14, 9, this is in the upper room discourse. Philip wanted Jesus to show him the Father. Yeah, Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. So we know the Father because of Jesus. Yeah, otherwise we could not know the Father. So there's uh, on page 71 of your quarterly, sorry. This, this is, uh, you know, it says there that he is the image of the invisible God. So this explanation on the quarterly I thought was very good. It says, Jesus Christ is not merely a reflection or copy of God the Father, whom we cannot see with our physical eyes, nor does Jesus simply represent God. The Greek word for image is icon. We recognize that. And it means manifestation of, thus Christ is the embodiment of the character and nature of the supreme God. In contrast, men and women are made in, in the image of God. See, there's a nuance here. In this sense, we reflect God's character in finite ways. For example, God is all-powerful. We have some power. God is all-knowing. Our knowledge is limited. God is everywhere. We have bodies. While Jesus' human nature reflects these limitations, his divine nature has no such limitations. This is the difference between men and women being made in the image of God and Jesus being the image of God. That's a very fine nuance. But it's a big difference. Well. Yeah. Yeah, we are in the image of God, and that's why murder is wrong. Because when you kill a person, you're killing an image bearer of God. And so, so the next, so the first quality of Christ is he is the image of the invisible God. The second, the second half of verse 15, he is the firstborn of all creation. Now this has been misconstrued terribly 
by people. So anyway, it is possible to translate this firstborn in it's possible to translate this as firstborn in creation, which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses do, but the context does not allow it. As creator and upholder of creation, he is over creation. So the Jehovah's Witnesses insert the word other in this passage six times in the New World Translation. It is not in the Greek, this word other. And, you know, it's a demonic uh, ploy. It's, it's a demonic ploy uh, to confuse people and keep them from being saved. So Proverbs 30, verses 5 and 6, has something to say about what the Jehovah's Witnesses have done. Every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, or he will reprove you, and you will be proved a liar. Then Revelation, right at the end of the canon of Scripture, it tells us a very similar thing. Revelation 22, verse 18, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. Very scary things. So you don't want to mess with scripture. Yeah, so what firstborn here indicates is that he preceded the creation and he is sovereign over the creation. Yeah. Um, it's not that he was the first created being, which is what the Jehovah's Witnesses have done. They said he made, he's the first created, yeah, he is the first created being. Okay, so and the next verse, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So Jesus is the creator of the universe. And he was walking around here. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? People were, could see him. Yeah, you know, this is mind-blowing stuff, man. This is mind-blowing stuff. So, you know, it's very interesting because the whole God, the Godhead, the three personages created, you know. And so this is from... I'm looking at a commentary to help me with this. It's by Norm Geisler. Um, and so he, I, I got this from him. Jesus is the instrumental cause. So the Father is the ultimate source or the efficient cause. He says, you know, the Lord said, the Father said, he willed it. The Son did it. The Son did it because the Father willed it. So anyway, I lost my place. Oh, yeah. So he created 
everything that is visible and everything that is invisible, the instrumental cause. The Son is the mediating cause. So he's the one who actually did it. The Father willed it. He did it. The Holy Spirit energizes it. As far as I can understand, it's hard to understand. And it's interesting that all things have been created through him and for him. It's like we're Jesus. I don't know if I'm being blasphemous saying this. If I am, correct me. But it feels like Jesus as the Son got a toy from the Father, which was the universe, <laughs> which he could save and redeem and all this. It's for him. Um, you know, the Greek word there is ice, which is into, means into. But anyway, the, the creation is for him. The, uh, the universe is for Jesus, which is amazing. Yeah. This makes sense when you realize if you try to live without Jesus, nothing makes sense. Everything you try to do fails. Well, even when you succeed, it's empty. Without Jesus, the universe makes no sense because it's for him and it's created by him. And so it's meant to be reconciled to him in order to make any sense. And if you're not reconciled to him, your life will not make sense. And it will be an incredible frustration. So, um, you know, it's, it's just amazing. And then verse 17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And that's just what Jana was saying. Has anybody ever heard of the concept of heat death? Heat death. Physicists talk about this. Astro, astro death. Heat death. Heat death is an idea which makes sense if you're a materialist, if you're an atheist. Heat death makes sense because everything runs by energy gradients right? And as the universe and their concept of the universe is that it started with the Big Bang. They don't say where the Big Bang came from. And so, and you have these energy gradients that make everything work. And when like a chemical reaction goes, you lose some energy as heat. Okay. So when all the energy gradients run down, all you have is heat, a uniform temperature. That is heat death. Nothing can work. Okay. So it's, a, you know, and actually the, the author that wrote my physics textbook in college, his last name was Tipler. I got a book by him because I, the title was very fascinating to me. It was called The Physics of Immortality. He wrote this book, and his idea, and he wrote about this concept of heat death in there. But his idea that we would be immortal is that our consciousness would be uh, put into the cloud as a computer. Yeah. So I mean, this is this is paganism. So anyway, what you know, the this concept of heat death is wrong. Because of verse 17. He holds everything together. 
Uh, Jesus is why the planets do not collide into one another. It's why they don't drive off into the universe somewhere, you know. We say we go by Saturn. Oh, here you go, you know. Because he holds it into position. So this is a quote from the quarterly two. Uh, the ultimate purpose of creation is Jesus Christ himself. According to God's redemptive plan, he designed the world in such a way that it can have real meaning only in Christ. So if you want real meaning, it has to be in Christ. It cannot be found any other way. So he is the creator. So he's the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of creation. He's the creator of the universe. And then, verse 18, he is the head of the body of the church, which it says, he is also head of the body of the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. So, so here we have, there's two analogies that the church are compared to. One is a body, and that's what we see here where Christ is the head. And then we are like the members of the body, right? And that's what 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is about. We all have different functions in the body. As individual believers, we all have differing spiritual gifts. Yeah, the other, so the body is one analogy. The other is an engaged couple analogy. At this point, we are engaged. To, to Christ. Is betrothed, yes. We are betrothed. And um, so that's Ephesians. And if you want marital counseling, you look at Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33. That is, that's your marriage counseling. Verses 23 and 24, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So there's an analogy between the church and Christ and the husband and wife in a marriage. And then 31 and 32 of the same chapter says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So that, you know, the most intimate relationship you can have on earth is the marital relationship. And that type of intimacy, and even greater intimacy, is available with us and Jesus. So actually it's greater, you know, because when you're married, you have two sinners living together. <laughs> Even if they're saved, the sin nature is there and, they, and, there's, and there's, you know, friction because of it. That's why you need Ephesians 5, 22 through 33, because it helps you with that friction. But with Jesus, there isn't that friction. Well, there is, until we're dead. 
and then there won't, and then there won't be friction anymore. But he's very patient with us. Okay, are we done? I think we're done with that section now. Oh yeah, I went too far. So can I uh, have somebody read eighteen again through twenty? That's the mission of Christ. Eighteen through twenty. I got carried away. And went. Colossians one. Yeah, eighteen through twenty. Thank you very much. Yeah. So we already talked about that. He's the head of the body, and so that's his fourth designation here and then he's the now this is a cool one he is the firstborn from the dead isn't that cool so that he himself will come to have first place in everything so that brings up the program of resurrection right there is a program of resurrection and every human being will be resurrected who have ever been created or born so two were created, and everybody else was born, <laughs> right? And there is a program. Now, Jesus is the first. He is firstborn from the dead. He is the first to have and eat, born into an et resurrected into an eternal body, which he is still in, which he's been in for 2,000 years, which is continually regenerated, you know, I don't know how this works. I suspect by the power of the Spirit, but I don't know. I don't know how it works. So Jesus led the, led the way in resurrection, and the second wave will be us. The second wave of the resurrected will be the church. He will come get us and say, come on here, sister. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so First uh, Corinthians 15, 21 says this, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. And that is us. Then comes the Old Testament saints. So we, and I've made this argument many times now, uh, we're resurrected before the tribulation, sometime, short time before the tribulation, not a long time, but there's some amount of time in between. And then the Old Testament saints will be raised and this is from Daniel 12, 1 and 2. Now at that time, in the context he's speaking of the tribulation period here, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. So Michael is assigned to protect Israel. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time your people, this is Daniel, so it's the Jews, Everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. So this happens post-tribulation, at the beginning of the millennium, the Old Testament saints, and then the tribulation martyrs, 
or also at that time, there's going to be a lot of martyrs in the tribulation. Believing believers who are alive go into the millennium alive and have kids. But there will be a bunch of martyred believers. And this is Revelation 20, verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and, that, and judgment was given to them. I believe that refers to the church. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. So those are the tribulation martyrs. And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they will be ruling with us, as will the Old Testament saints. And then the last resurrection is the resurrection unto death, which is for the unsaved dead. And that is the great white throne judgment. Yeah, if you die rejecting Christ, this is what you can look forward to. The worst day of your life is better than this. The worst day of your life. So anyway, it's um, this is also Revelation 20 and verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, that's Jesus, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. So that's at the destruction of the, the heavens and the earth. It's at that time that this judgment will be. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there's a book of life. There's a book of deeds for each person. The book of life, the book of deeds. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, everyone, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire, according to his deeds. So, um, yeah, the, the Lord will have a book. You know, it, it, he knows already. <laughs> I don't know. He looks in the book. Your name is not here. What did you do during your life? Okay, this is your punishment according to that. And it will be in the lake of fire. So Mahatma Gandhi will not get as much punishment as Adolf Hitler. According to his deeds. It will be perfectly just according to his deeds. So, but Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. And then verse 19 Okay, so verse 19, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. So, Jesus, number one is the image of the invisible God. Number two is the firstborn of creation. Number three, he's the creator of the universe. Number four, he's the head of the body of the church. Number five, he's the firstborn from the dead. Number six, all the fullness of deity is in him. And the quarterly had a very interesting box. And I, I, I want to read this box to you because this is very interesting about, this is about the hypostatic union. 
So the hypostatic union is Jesus has two natures. One is divine, fully divine, and one is human, although human without the sin nature. It is humanity as it is meant to be. So, anyway, Paul said that the fullness of God dwells within Christ. Yet within the same sentence, the apostle described the very human death of Christ on the cross. How could the same person be divine and human at the same time? The relationship between Christ's human and divine natures has perplexed believers for centuries. The following illustration might help us come a little closer to understanding this mystery. The attributes of God are limitless. He is all-knowing, all-powerful, and present everywhere. These attributes might be symbolized as a line that goes in both directions to infinity. Being made in the image of God, men and women reflect God's attributes too, but with indefined limits. Human beings have some knowledge and some power and are confined to the space their bodies inhabit. These attributes might be symbolized as a circle. Jesus, being God and human, exhibits the divine attributes without limitations and with some limitations at the same time. Think about that long. You're making nuts. For example, Jesus is all-knowing, but said that he did not know the time when he would return. Jesus is everywhere present, and yet has a body. The relationship between the divine and human natures in Christ might be symbolized as a loop in the line of divine attributes. See, I never thought this was interesting. The space within the loop represents Jesus' human nature. The line that goes on forever represents his divine nature. Like all analogies, this one is imperfect and eventually breaks down. However, it provides a dim picture of a mystery we may not fully understand. Mm -hmm. And he had to have a body so that he could redeem us. So he could die. So he could die. Because that's how he redeemed us. Yeah. So um, it's uh, Jesus is a. Yeah. In his humanity. In his humanity, he was. Jesus, and Dane has made this point several times. Jesus, when he was here on earth, functioned the way he desires us to function. Right. Yeah, he functioned with the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what empowered him. You know, he's he has the power of God himself. And he did things that only God could do. Some of his messianic miracles nobody else could do. But he in in general, he functioned the same way he wants us to function, which is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, so isn't this a great lesson? I love this lesson. This lesson is a great lesson, yeah. man. Yeah, so um the basis of what we believe. Yeah. So verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. That's the last point of this. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So uh, some use this verse to, to promote universalism. Uh, because it says he reconciled all things to himself. Uh, but that denies numerous scriptures 
what Jesus did do when he died is he made all people savable. There's not a person on earth that is not savable, and that's what Monica was saying. Uh, the problem is people are reluctant. Our nature, our depraved nature makes us reluctant <laughs> to trust God. And that is why the Spirit convicts us. The ministry of the, yeah, the ministry of the Spirit in this world is to convict people of sin and righteousness and judgment. And it is that ministry which draws people. Can you imagine how sad it will be for him to send people to the lake of fire? Yeah, he desires it. Yeah. 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 He says, I warned you to come, but you're in my image, and I refuse to force you. You're in my image. But this is First John 2, 2, about the fact that all humanity is savable. First John 2, 2, he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. So if people are not saved, it is not his fault. He has done everything he can other than deny their image-bearing status, which he will not do. Yeah, so this talk, uh, this passage, Romans 8, 21, talks about this reconciling of all things to himself. It says that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now, and not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. You know, when Jesus comes and sets up his kingdom, the animals will become herbivorous again. They will not be eating each other. They will not be attacking each other. Yeah, the, the baby will be able to play with a viper, and it won't bite him. And, you know, it, it will be agricultural prosperity. Um, there will, will not be war. Yeah, lifespans will be like before the flood. And so, you know, that that is what helps us to live godly now, that hope of what we have. Yeah, what we have coming. Okay, so section C. I'll read that one. Uh, Verse 21. This is verse 21 through 23. And although you were formerly... Okay. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds... Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let's think about how we were before we believed in Jesus. Does anybody remember 
before they believed in Jesus? How many? How many? Yeah. How many people came to Jesus when they were children here? Okay. I did too, but I didn't know it <laughs> for much of my life because no, I'm not real bright. So um, this is this is how we are, and this is how we're born in Adam. This is natural to us. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, nor for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So if you're in the flesh, it doesn't matter how many things you do that seem nice, you cannot please God. You can not please God. And that's why he says all your righteous gifts are filthy rags. So this is Luke 6.45. The good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for his mouth speaks from that which, his, which fills his heart. Now, if you're an unbeliever, what fills your heart is evil. Right. You, th this is the number one. You know, you're out for number one. That is the natural, you know, what is the motto of the Satanist? The motto of the Satanist is, do what thou wilt. I once heard uh, Peter O'Toole say that on, a, uh, on a, an interview, and I'm like, my goodness, that's chilling. <laughs> yeah, that is chilling. Do what you will. So you want to use your image-bearing status to be God yourself. You know, and that's what Satan said in the garden. You shall be as gods. No, the, um, this is one more thing about the unsaved person. 1 Corinthians 2.14, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So. How did Jesus fix this? By giving us the Holy Spirit. Yeah, he died. He died. Right. And when, and when we trust him, we die. Do you know that? When you trust him, you die. You're joined to his death. And that is why your sin nature cannot control you. It can control you if you let it. But that what that death does, you know, have you heard this uh, phrase, you're dead to me? Yeah. You're dead to me. Yeah. Christianity, the individual dies. You die. You do not die to me. I die. We are dead with Christ so that we can be raised with him, see? And um, this conference that Dane went to just recently, it was all about that. It's Romans 6 through 8. And, uh, you know, I never really understood it, that the believer himself dies. The Adamic nature, he dies to that Adamic nature. The Adamic nature does not go away, but he is dead, so that he can respond to God. 
and the Holy Spirit comes in. So that's why in the believer there is a fight all our lives. There's a fight all our lives. Today am I going to present my members to God for use? I present my members. I present my body to you, Lord. What would you have me to do today? Or do I do what I feel like? Which is going back to my sin nature. Right. The Adamic man is gone. Yeah, this is what makes us positionally righteous. We are dead. And we are dead in Christ because we are put into Christ. We are positionally righteous because God sees us as Jesus. And we have his righteousness. But, and that that's right. And and yes, Jenna, that is the desire of God. And he says, so he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. That is our justification. Verse 23 is our sanctification. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So that is why others can see around you that something's different in you. And it's a progressive process, and some people get farther in it than others. And it has to do with your own, allowing your new nature to be in control. Because you have the ability to go back and forth. You can go back and forth between the new and the old. And that is why the Bible is essential, because the Bible feeds the new nature. The new nature doesn't have power. The Holy Spirit has the power. Yeah. And the, the Bible shows you that, um, you know, that, that's what helps you grow. So in every day, you get up, you look in the Word, the Word strengthens you, you say, okay, Lord, how can I serve you today? And you think about it. Okay, you write it down. <laughs> no, that's what I do. <laughs> And, uh, you know, and so there's no room for the flesh. There's no need ever to be in the flesh, ever. You, you don't have to do it again. And um, because all it brings is death. The, the mind set on the flesh is death. And that is written to the Christian. The mind set on the flesh is death. If you... If you set your mind on your flesh and let it control you, it causes death. And it short-circuits your growth. Yeah, so anyway, verse 23 relates to practical righteousness in the world. Others will see us change for the better as we read God's word and submit to what is appropriate for us through the power of the indwelling spirit. So. Good lesson, huh? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lord, we thank you for this, and we pray that you'd help us to keep our eyes on you and submit to you so we can, uh, we want other people to be drawn to you too. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.